Matthew chapter 14, Matthew chapter 14, as we continue our studies in the, uh, uh, the life of Christ, and this morning we're going to begin with the miracles of Christ, the miracles of Christ, and um, we're looking at Peter walking on water this morning, and uh, the text is from Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33. Just exactly what are miracles? Well, they're supernatural acts caused by the will of Jesus, which is different than and interrupt the way that ordinary life operates on a day-to-day basis. It's impossible to know just exactly how many miracles Jesus performed in the Scriptures. And here's why. Matthew 8.16 says, When evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. So, many and all, we don't know how many that is. We don't know how many were demon-possessed, and we don't know how many were sick. Now, there are 33 known miracles in the Gospels that Jesus performed during his earthly ministry, but again, we're not going to look at all 33. There are four types of miracles. One, there's the miracle of ruling over nature. Second, there's the healing of the sick or restoring health. And third, there's casting out demons. And fourth, raising the dead. So we're going to look at one miracle from each of these four types. So why did Jesus perform miracles? Well, there are at least six obvious reasons or purposes. One, to glorify God. Second, to confirm Jesus' claims of being the Son of God, Messiah, Savior. Third, to show Christ's divine power. And fourth, to lessen the needs in people's lives. And fifth, to show Christ's power over Satan's power and evil. And sixth, to teach us about faith. Jesus didn't do miracles just to boast. He didn't do them to show off. He didn't perform miracles to entertain people or gather a following. Now, unfortunately, we've all heard preachers who claim to have the gift of healing and use gimmicks to get a crowd to their church, which is totally unscriptural. There's one late night TV. If you, you know, if you're coming across the channel, Peter Popoff is one. You know, in 1986, he was exposed for using an earpiece to receive radio messages from his wife, who would give him the names, the addresses, and the ailments of those in his audience. He falsely claimed God revealed this information to him so that he could cure by faith, cure them by faith by healing. He went bankrupt the next year, but he made a comeback in the late 1990s. And in the mid-2000s, he bought TV time to promote this miracle spring water. You know, and he calls himself a prophet. So, you know, we have a lot of those, unfortunately. Also, Jesus never performed a miracle unnecessarily. He never performed miracles when man could take care of the problem himself. Because Jesus never promoted miracles that promoted idleness or laziness or to discourage productiveness. Jesus' miracles were not harmful to character as well. But there are critics today. A lot of them who, again, uh, deny miracles. You know, science, and if, it, if it can't be proven by science, then it can't happen. 
You know, again, they 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 criticize the uh, you know the the miracle at the Dead Sea. You know, they say that really was just a, a sea of reeds. It was about a foot of water, and yet the Bible says that you know the Egyptian army drowned in there. Well, he drowned in a foot of water. That's a miracle in itself. You know, if that's what happened. But you you have them all the time. You know, criticizing or denying the miracles of Christ. So we shouldn't be surprised that his miracles have been under attack by critics since day one. The reason for all of the criticism of Christ's miracles is that the critics don't like the authority of Jesus Christ. They don't like his message. And if somebody accepts the miracles, then they have to accept the things that Jesus said and they have to accept his commands. And those who reject Jesus have to make excuses for rejecting his miracles. So let's look at the first miracle this morning in our studies. Jesus walking on water and Peter as well. Matthew is the only gospel that actually actually records that Peter walked on water. You know, John and Mark, you know, uh, make comments about that time, but they don't mention Peter walking on water. And this is uh, one of those miracles where we see Jesus ruling over nature. Now, the disciples were sailing on the Sea of Galilee again. But this time it wasn't of their own choosing. They were out fishing. They weren't out doing something that they were choosing to do on their own. Jesus sent the disciples out. Jesus sent the disciples in a boat to travel to another area away from where the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 took place. In verse 22 of Matthew 14, we read, Immediately he, that is Jesus, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitude away. It says, Immediately he made. Now there's a strong sense of urgency here. Jesus wanted them to quickly set sail to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And he would join them later. But he wanted them to leave now. But why did he want them to go now? Why was there such an urgency? Well, Matthew and Mark don't tell us. But the Gospel of John does. Jesus wanted to get away from the crowd because this crowd was so excited by the miracles that the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. And and that he was afraid that you know, they would come and take Jesus by force to make him a king. John six fifteen. The crowd was so excited by this feeding of the 5,000, they were in the mood to start a revolution against the Roman government and make Jesus their king. This wasn't a good influence for the disciples. Because, you see, they might get caught up in the frenzy, defeating the whole teaching and training of Jesus with them. Disciples didn't understand yet that Calvary had to come before the crown. This made the disciples very susceptible to to joining this crowd and to try to make Jesus their king. So Jesus urges them to hurry up, get into the boat, head out to the sea. The crowd's enthusiasm for Christ, though, it wasn't spiritual, it was carnal. They only wanted Jesus for a political king and not a spiritual king. It was politics and not holiness that they wanted him to be king. You see, it was because he gave them food for their belly, but no food for their soul. They weren't interested. They wanted what he was giving, but they didn't want him, which is no no different today. People are more interested in their physical need than their spiritual need. After Jesus sent his disciples and the multitude away, verse 23 says he went 
on the mountain by himself to pray. How important it is to get away and to pray when you're dealing with people who want you to do contrary to the will of God. Especially when the people want you to get, want to give you great honor, a position like a king. Popularity is a powerful force. People, people want to be popular. They want to be liked. And it's a, it's a popular force that causes God's people a lot of times to get out of the will of God. You know, popularity. A lot of people might say, oh, you know, why are you going to do that? And, you know, you don't really need to do that. And, and, and they listen and, and, and it may persuade you to get out of the will of God. Power and position can also be a great hindrance to doing the will of God. And as the disciples were going where Jesus told them to go, we read that a storm suddenly hit the Sea of Galilee. Look, verse 24 now. The boat was now, notice, was now in the middle of the sea being tossed by the waves for the wind was contrary. Now, this was no small storm. This was no light breeze uh, blowing across the Sea of Galilee. Uh, John six eighteen says that the wind was great. So a powerful wind had come down on the Sea of Galilee and it created a turbulent storm. You know, I went, the time that I went to Israel, I, I got to see an example of this. I was stay, uh, staying at the, uh, at the Sea of Galilee, and I think it was called the Tiberius Hotel. And th there's a, a mountain that, that has a valley, and, it, and through that valley, the wind will come down right onto the Sea of Galilee. And, and when I first got there, you know, it was calm and it was quiet. And then as it got later, I, I heard what sounded like noise, and, and I looked out the window, and it was, it, that wind had kicked up. And many of the roofs are flat over there. And you saw the, the planters and, and chairs that they had been blown over. You could see white caps on the Sea of Galilee. And it was just really neat to see what, you know, many times you read about in the scriptures. But the wind kicked up and, and it was pretty, it was pretty uh, turbulent. So that's what we have going on here. The wind was, uh, was, was strong. It was, it was contrary, the Bible says. Again, it wasn't a small storm. It was a powerful wind that came down on the Sea of Galilee. And verse 24 says the boat was now in the middle of the sea. The word now means that this wasn't where it intended to be. They were blown off course from their original course, probably going around the, the, the coast to get to their, where they were going to go. But the storm was so strong that they were blown off course into the middle of the sea. And it says it was being tossed about by the waves. The waves were beating against the boat. The waves are going into the boat, over the boat. So you can see that the disciples were in a lot of danger. And the word tossed means to be tormented, to be under great duress. They were far from land, which meant their lives were in grave danger. And in verse 24, again, the word says the wind was contrary. Mark 6, 48 says, then he saw them. Jesus saw them straining at rowing because the wind was against them. This storm was a real trial for the disciples. And the word ordinary, uh, contrary here speaks of the wind uh, being, it describes trials. The word contrary, speaking of the wind, describes trials. And a lot of things in our life are contrary to us. No one who spent time on the Sea of Galilee went for long before they experienced these contrary winds. And it's the same thing with, this, with, with us journeying, uh, our journeying on this sea of life. Sooner or later, we're going to experience circumstances that are contrary to us. Now, roses are beautiful, but they come with painful thorns. 
the sun doesn't shine every day, which has been pretty obvious in the last week. Clouds and thorns are a part of life. Job was right when he said man is born of trouble as the sparks fly upward. But not all of the contrary winds of life hurt us. They're designed to strengthen our faith sometimes. Sometimes it takes the contrary winds to make things better and to strengthen our character and our faith. The timing of the storm also teaches us something. First, the disciples were doing what they were supposed to be doing when the storm hit. The disciples were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. They were in the storm because of their obedience. Now, sometimes when we're going through the storms of life, we begin to believe, and Satan's a big helper in this, oh, you must have done something wrong. God must be mad at you, or you must have some sin in your life, or this wouldn't be happening. But understand, being obedient can sometimes put you in a storm. But God has a purpose for it. But sometimes the storms in our life do come because we're disobedient, like what happened with Jonah. But some storms come as a result of obedience. Look at the example of Jesus Christ in, in Matthew chapter 1, a 4 verse 1. In the last verse, I think it's 39 of Matthew chapter 3, we see Jesus having just a beautiful experience. He was being baptized. The heavens were open and the voice from heaven spoke. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Holy Spirit comes down upon him. I mean, it was a blessed experience. The very first verse of chapter 4 says, he was led into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. He went from a glorious experience to being tempted by the devil. So again, it shows that, you know, we don't have to be doing something wrong. We don't have to be, you know, uh, out of the will of God or, or, or again, uh, something wrong in our life to, to, to go and experience trials and tribulations. Again, it happens because we're being obedient to the word of God. And so, again, those contrary winds will test our faith and they will also build up our faith. And we see that the storm hit full force. It says on the fourth watch. Now, the fourth watch was between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning at the darkest possible time. And how many times have you experienced a trial hitting you at the darkest possible time? And then God leaves us in the dark as to why. Lord, why, why is this happening? Why now? But you see, that's when you have to learn to walk by faith in the dark if you're going to walk victoriously for God. And to make things worse, Jesus wasn't with them when the storm hit. They were far away from him, spatially, all right, distance-wise. But it was hard enough, you know, it was hard enough for the disciples when he was on board with them. But Jesus was still with them in spirit. But you see, the disciples had to learn this truth that Jesus is always with us, you guys, even though he's not with us physically. But you see, the disciples didn't know that Jesus was watching over them in the storm. And this is a great lesson here. Matthew 6, 48 says that Jesus saw them straining at rowing. I love that. He saw them. He was watching over them in the storm. And many times during our trials, we feel like God has deserted us. And we feel that he's nowhere near and he can't see what's going on. Feeling like this only makes our trials more painful. That's why we, we're, you know, we're not encouraged to be moved by our feelings. 
because they can lead us wrong. They can lead us astray. That's why we need to know what the word of God says, that he will never leave us nor forsake us. And that's what we stand on during those difficult times. We can rest assured that God has not forsaken us and that he sees us in our trials. God reminded Moses of this great truth regarding the Israelites in Egypt when God said to Moses in Exodus 3.9, I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. The disciples were struggling in this storm. Now the disciples, they had their faults, like all men do. But there's one thing you have to give them credit for. They didn't quit rowing. They didn't give up. They didn't quit. Which is a lesson we need to take away from this. Even though the winds were powerful, they didn't quit rowing. They were a bunch of dedicated guys who kept on rowing to get to the place where Jesus had sent them. And many times in the places that Jesus sends us, you know, right in the middle of the, the difficulty of it, we want to give up. We want to quit rowing. We just want to stop. But we have to keep going to get to the place where Jesus has sent us. And sometimes it might take a miracle to get to where Jesus sends us to finish that task that Jesus has given us. But here's the thing, until Jesus intervenes, we should put out our best efforts in spite of all the opposition that we might be experiencing. Giving up doesn't show dedication to the will of God. The disciples were doing exactly what Jesus told them to do. And you know what? They were committed to doing it. Even when they faced some really big problems. Wouldn't it be great, man, if we were more like them? If we would be like they were. When overwhelmed by problems, we would just keep rowing, keep rowing, just keep going the course. Because you see, Jesus will come at just the right time. And then in verse 25 through 26, again, we read between 3 a.m. or the fourth watch, between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. It says, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. Now, in Matthew 6, 48, it says that he intended to go past them. The way Jesus arrived was going to test them. It says that at first, it seemed like Jesus was just going to walk right on by them as if he didn't even see them. But it says when they cried out in fear, he stopped and he came to them. But why did Jesus act like that? Why did he act like he was just going to pass them up? Because he was testing them to see if they would pay attention to divine revelation. God's, God's revelations are like a, moral, like a moral test. You see, if you pass them, you'll be given more revelation. If you don't pass them, you won't get more. God doesn't reveal more about himself to us if we haven't paid attention to what he's already shown us. Why should he? If, if God shows me something, I just, eh, why should he show me more? Even though the disciples re reacted in fear, they passed the test by paying attention to this miracle, walking on water, so they were shown more about Jesus. When they saw Jesus walking on the water, they were troubled. They said they thought it was a spirit, a ghost. And the word trouble means they were terrified. They were terrified when they saw Jesus walking on the water. They thought it was a spirit. 
The word spirit is where we get our English word phantom. How many times in our troubles do we fail to understand the times and the situations correctly and what we see are phantoms in our troubles? Things that, that, that aren't what they are. Things that seem real, but they're not. When instead, it's Jesus working for us. Like the disciples, there's, there's so much flesh in us compared to faith. So that in our troubles, we become quickly anxious in our circumstances. And we think things and see things that aren't real. Instead of calmly evaluating them by faith in God, who, as Paul said, works all things together for good to them that love God and who are called according to his purpose. But verse 27 says that immediately Jesus said, don't don't be afraid, be of good cheer, it is I. You see, Jesus knew exactly what to say. Don't be afraid. He knew they were afraid. Don't be afraid, guys. He encourages them, be of, good, be of good cheer. Why? It is I. When the word of God was spoken, it calmed the disciples down. Again, why the word of God is so necessary to us, so needed to us. Because it's what will encourage us during those dark, difficult times. They went from being terrified to calmness. They went from worrying to worship. Again, that's what makes God's word so important to us. In his word, we will find great peace in our trials. Now, he said, it is I. It is I is only two words in the Greek. And these two words are a lot more powerful and significant than most of us realize. What Jesus said here when he said, it is I, he said, I am. He says, I am speaking of his deity. The disciples in their danger needed the great I am. It was God in the flesh who was coming to help them. The great I am, the becoming one. I will become whatever you need me to be in your situation. The great I am, he has no trouble stopping the stormy sea. And that's what comforted the disciples because God was with them. So much of the world is trying to find good cheer today. And they're trying to find peace today. And they're trying to remove fear from their hearts. But apart from the great I am, it'll never happen. When Jesus got to the disciples, this is what prompted Peter to walk on the water. In verse 28, he says, Lord, is it really you? Tell me to come walking on the water. If it is you. Peter wasn't interested in walking on water unless he was going to Jesus. Secondly, notice he didn't say, Lord, I'll come to you by boat. Hold on, Lord, let me let me roll my way over to you. But no, on the water. That spoke of courage. Peter wasn't only willing to walk on water, but to walk on water during the fierce storm. Because you see, the storm didn't stop until Peter and Jesus got back into the boat, verse 32 tells us. 
Peter didn't walk on water to show off. Peter walked on water to get closer to Jesus Christ, even if it meant getting into a dangerous situation, even if it was a serious, a dangerous thing to do. He said to the Lord, Jesus, if it's you, bid me to come. So in verse 29, it says, Jesus said to Peter, come. Jesus gave Peter the command to walk on the water. Come. He did so. Peter only went when Jesus gave the command. Not before. It wasn't an arrogant walk. It was a permitted walk. God's command was the enablement for Peter. And we need to remember that when God commands us, to do something in the command is the enablement. Peter was empowered by Jesus to walk on the water when Jesus said, come. Peter wouldn't have been able to get out of the boat and walk on water if it was on his own will. And we read that Peter walked on the water. This amazing feat, this amazing miracle by Peter is an encouragement to everyone who's in Christ's service. If our work looks impossible, if what God calls us to do looks impossible, remember that Jesus can enable us to do the impossible. Verse 30, notice what it says. But when he, when Peter saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid. Peter started out well. He was walking on water after going a little ways, though he got scared and he began to sink. Dr. Herschel Ford said in jest that maybe Thomas was there in the boat and he saw the big wave coming and said to Peter, Hey, Peter, look out. Here comes the big one. And it freaked Peter out. And it caused him you know, to, to lose sight of the Lord and to begin to focus on the, on the circumstances. And a lot of us do that kind of a thing. We look at, the, we, we, we look at the, how, how big the trial is and we focus on it and we no longer see how big our God is. And a lot of people do what Dr. Herschel is, is suggesting here in jest that, you know, they don't encourage us in our faith. They don't encourage us in, in our attempts to do great things for God. You know, you tell them, oh, you know what, I, I'm going to go to uh, to 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 uh, South America and, or, or I'm going to go to Africa. Or I'm going to go here on a missionary trip and I, you know, I'm going to do. They say, you're going to do what? Do you know how dangerous that is? Do you know the risk that you're taking? Why are you going to do that? A lot of times they're negative. And all they see is the dangers and the obstacles and they belittle our visions and they cause doubt and fear, but they never encourage our faith. Now, we don't know what it was that brought about Peter's failure. But he began to sink. Because he focused on the storm instead of on Jesus Christ and his word come. We forget about the word so much and we listen to Satan's voice when he begins to belittle and to discourage. And rather than, thus says the Lord. Peter looked at the wind. And he started to, to worry. And that's when he went down. If we focus on the circumstances, our accomplishments for Jesus Christ will be nil. 
Zero. Victory only comes when we focus on Jesus Christ, when we consider his words come and his power. But the moment we let him out of our sight, we're done for. We're done. And, you know, we won't do anything well. And in verse 30 of Matthew 14, it says, and beginning to sink, Peter cried out, saying, Lord, save me. Charles Spurgeon said to walk on water is not an essential characteristic of faith, but to pray when you begin to sink is. I like that. Peter didn't waste time or words in his prayer. It was short and to the point. I think it's the shortest prayer in the Bible. Lord, save me. But it was sincere. Heartfelt. And in verse 31, we read, And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him. Jesus didn't wait to answer this prayer because it could have been fatal. And some prayers are delayed. But never for salvation because it will always get answered immediately. Because there's a danger in waiting to be saved. There's a great danger in waiting. Paul said, hey, today is the day of salvation. Waiting to be saved is too great a delay in seeking Christ for deliverance. But after Jesus was saved, uh, after Jesus saved Peter from drowning, Jesus rebuked him. Oh, you of little faith. Peter had faith, but it was small. He had faith to start his walk, but he needed more faith to finish his walk. It shows us we need faith in our walk with Christ from the moment it begins to the day we die. Every day, it's a walk of faith. Peter's failure was in trying to walk, but in walking poorly. Jesus' rebuke was saying, Peter, you should, have been, you, should be, you should be doing more than you were. This could be a rebuke for many of us today. He asked Peter in verse 31, why did you doubt? And the question speaks about the inexcusableness of those who doubt. And especially in Peter's case, Peter had just witnessed 5,000 men, women, and children fed from five loaves and two fish. Uh, uh, Philip did the same thing. When they saw the multitude coming and Jesus said, Peter uh, uh, said, Philip, you know, feed these people. How are we going to do that, Lord? And he gets out the calculator. Goes, oh, we don't have enough money to do that. Philip had been with the Lord years. Watched the miracles. And then he says, how are we going to do this? It shows us it shows our humanness. You know, Judas, how long had he been with the Lord? And somewhere down the line, he, he, he lost his, he took his eyes off of the Lord. I mean, this feeding of the 5,000, it was a great miracle, but Peter didn't catch on. Philip had seen the great miracles, but he didn't catch on. That's why Peter's doubting was inexcusable. Peter had enjoyed great spiritual advantages as a disciple of Christ. The teachings of Jesus that Peter must have heard, the miracles that he must have seen. I mean, that should have removed all doubt. But Peter's like a lot of us that have spiritual advantages. 
when our faith is still small. Let Jesus' rebuke humble us as well and inspire us to get busy building our faith, developing our faith so that we can glorify God by, the, by better things that we can do for God. Verse 32 says, when they climbed back in the boat, the wind stopped. Jesus brought the peace. And nobody can bring peace like Jesus does. And yet most of the world doesn't want Jesus. So it's no wonder that the world, doesn't, that, that the world knows so little peace. Mark 6, 51 and 52 says, And they were greatly amazed in themselves beyond measure, and they marveled. They were blown away, and rightly so. The disciples' attitude about Jesus now was higher than ever because of this miracle. Mark 6.52 says, For they still didn't understand the significance of the miracle of the loaves. Here's what. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. Their hearts were hardened. The disciples' reaction here, even though they were amazed at what happened, they're rebuked by these words. Jesus was saying that if they, felt, if they had felt if they had felt about the miracle feeding of the 5,000, they wouldn't have been so surprised when he calmed the storm. And you know, it is dishonoring to the Lord to be so surprised when they should have expected it. And I've caught myself saying, you know, when I've seen something that just blows me away by the way, I go, I can't believe it. Why can't you? It's God. Things are impossible with man, but not with God. I teach it, I hear it, I read it, and then sometimes I say, I go, I can't believe it. God must shake his head. Poor Joe. Just like this, he just doesn't get it. But you know, it, it's just such a marvel, and it's such a, it's an amazing thing. You know, it's just a wonderful thing to, that wonderful thing to see. But I think it dishonors the Lord to be surprised at the God of the universe doing such great things. But it says here in Mark that the problem was a hardened heart. And this is what unbelief does to the heart. The disciples didn't think about the the miracle feeding of the 5,000, which shows us just how fast we can forget God's blessings. God delivers us from one storm and then we forget about it when we go through the next one. Then verse 33 says, Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him. Notice, that's what it's all about. Right after the wind stopped, the disciples worshipped. The disciples celebrated their deliverance by immediately worshipping the one who saved them. The word worship, the, uh, translated worshipped, means to bow, to make bow, to do reverence to someone. Worship here is bowed down before Christ in honor of Christ. In verse 33, it says, they worshiped him saying, truly, notice, truly you are the son of God. Again, you can see the purpose for the here, for the miracle. They recognized you're the son of God. It brought worship to them. These words, it says, truly you are the Son of God. These words said, Jesus, you're God. Again, one of the reasons for miracles. Again, to prove 
the claims that Jesus made. And again, you are the son of God. These words uh, uh, said that Jesus was God. You can't worship correctly if your doctrine is not correct. The disciples had good doctrine here because they acknowledged the deity of Jesus Christ. In closing, the disciples were growing in their faith. The miracle confirmed Jesus' claim to be the Son of God. And it demonstrated His divine power, which are just a few of the reasons for miracles. And we need to pray the prayer, Lord Jesus, increase our faith. Father, thank You so much for Your wonderful Word, God. Thank You so much for our wonderful Savior, Jesus. Lord, help us, Father, to remember the wonderful Word of God. To wonder, to remember our wonderful Savior, especially in the dark times, especially in the turbulent, turbulent trials on the sea of life. When the winds are contrary. And when the night is dark. And when we can't see. And when we feel abandoned. And far from God. Help us to remember that He's watching. And He knows everything that's taking place. And that he has a purpose for whatever I go through. God doesn't just randomly let me go adrift in the sea of life and then hopefully I'll land on safe shores. He will meet me and he will direct me. And I will reach a safe harbor. And someone once said that Jesus doesn't promise us an easy journey, but a safe landing. And Lord, help us to, to, to know these things, God, in our heart and in our mind and to have them etched in our minds, God, so that when those, those turbulent times come, God, we're, we're, not, we're not distraught, God. We're not falling apart. But Lord, that we would draw close to you, God. As you stood by Paul that night in the stormy sea on his way to Malta. Lord, as you met Peter in the prison that one morning and he walked out a free man. Lord, as you were with Joseph in Pharaoh's house and in prison, we read, read over and over that God was with them. And Lord, you've promised to be with us, to never leave us nor forsake us. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And maybe you're adrift this morning on the sea of life and 
You have no idea where you're going to end up. You have no idea where you're going. The Lord Jesus Christ is our signpost. He's our anchor. He's the wind in our sail. He's our all in all. He's our sufficiency. And he said, apart from him, we can do nothing. And God is still doing miracles today. One of the greatest ones is the miracle of the new birth. And if you desire to experience a miracle this morning, you can experience it in the new birth. Born again by the Spirit of God. The worship team is going to lead us in a time of worship. And this time is for you. If God has spoken to your heart. You don't want to meet this wonderful God, and make Him a part of your life. And let Him come into your stormy life and bring peace and calm. Then as we worship, if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, you get up out of your seat, make your way towards the steps up front, I'll meet you there. And when the song is over, we'll pray together a simple prayer of faith.